It's time for security now. Steve Gibson calls this episode a propeller head episode. Get your thinking cap and your beanie on because we're going to talk about how something called elliptic curve crypto works and why you might start seeing it on many devices. That's next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 374, recorded October 17th, 2012. Elliptic Curve Cryptography. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users from anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today. Visit GoToAssist.com and use the promo code SECURITY. And by Ford. Featuring available sync. Now you can control your media player with simple voice commands. Enjoy your drive while you easily search and listen to your favorite songs. Check it out on the 2012 Ford Focus and at Ford.com slash technology. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you now. With this guy right here now, the Security Now host and explainer-in-chief, Mr. Steve Gibson. Hi, Steve. Too much coffee for Now! <laughs> Triple tall latte. So I decided you drink the big cups, right? The venti, quinti, and you put a lot of shots in it. But I realize I don't want all that milk, so I just put a lot of shots in a small cup. It was so funny. Yesterday, Starbucks, uh, my Starbucks, was demoing their new machine, which just came out. The, the Clover. Ver- Did you the, get your Clover? No, no, no. Oh, no, no. It's a little, it's a consumer oh, that's based right. yeah. thing. The the ver- verazo or yeah. something like that yeah. it's you know yeah. trying to sound ver- veracic or something i don't know <laughs> anyway and so they were like you know I-, I was walking around and they said would you like to try a latte from our new verazo and i said oh okay and they said but it's not six shots i was like oh okay well you know maybe we use three of them lined up or something it was a little disturbing they have a little pod it's it's you know it's it's a pod and we, we, we've seen pods before i'm not impressed you know, pod of espresso yeah. they had a pod of milk and i was looking no. at it thinking hey wait a minute how did a latte come out of this little pod no. of milk then i because i it got my curiosity up i did some research and it's powdered finely powdered oh, no. milk no and no, it's no, like no. Eh, i don't think so no 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 and it's 200 dollars no, no. for this little pod-based system, and you know, it's, it's what they're pushing now. And they have a, a bigger brother that's got three times the tank size, and it tells you when the water's getting low or the pods that used pod storage tank is getting full and so forth. But I am extremely I'm, happy with um, my uh, Breville dual boiler. I have to say, I am getting the best coffee out of that, and the and the Vario. The Barazza Vario grinder. I mean, I spent a lot, of, a lot more than two hundred bucks on it, but I am. Hey, it's but, the best yeah. coffee. And now, when I it, drink Starbucks or even Pete's, or it's like, wow, I miss my coffee. Yep, yep. You know? That's the way to be. It's nice when you can get some really good espresso out of your 
out of your own home machine. But that's not what we're here for today. No, indeed, it is not. <laughs> what, what are we here uh, for? I see something that worries me. Yeah, it should. <laughs> Elliptical uh, curve cryptography? <laughs> You're kidding me, yeah, right? We've, we've been doing a bunch of softball episodes for Uh-oh. a while. I mean, they've been Uh-oh. interesting, but they haven't been very challenging. Steve's going to throw the high heat today, kids. So, yes, we need to wind up our propeller beanies, springs right to the breaking point in order to get enough lift for this. Um, this is something important that we've referred to from time to time. We have never done a, okay, explainer-in-chief mode, how does this work? And that is elliptic curve cryptography, ECC. Now, we have an, we have an acronym collision, of course. Because ECC is near and dear to my heart as error correction code <clears throat> that I've been living with, you know, ever since the beginning of Spinrite. This is a different ECC. This is a, an alternative technology for public key crypto as opposed to private key or, or symmetric crypto, um, which we've talked about extensively. We've also talked about the, the, Typical RSA style crypto, the famous you take two prime numbers and you multiply them in a in a modulus field and in, in a finite field, and the, the point being that it is we're relying on on the difficulty, as far as we know, of factor of, of factoring large numbers into primes, and, and you know it is the difficulty of determining prime factors. We're relying on that hard problem for all of the protection that we get from existing sort of standard RSA-style public key crypto. And the, the, the problem with that type of crypto are several that we've talked about. One is primarily it's slow, um, which is to say it, it, is, it takes a, a huge amount of work for a processor to perform the operations needed because the the actual protection is relatively weak. That's why we need like 2,048-bit keys in order to get state-of-the-art protection. So the, the protection level is weak, so we compensate for that by making the keys long. Elliptic curve cryptography is – it's been around already for a couple decades. It's not like it's a brand-new invention, but – it's coming into vogue because we're becoming more interested in in performance and in lower power applications. There are some things coming up I can't talk about um, that I, I needed to lay some groundwork for, and we need to understand. What do you mean what, you can't talk about it? Well, I'm I'm there's some things. No, 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 not not my stuff. It's other people's work. Some products that are in the works that will be using elliptic curve cryptography. Ah. And that's a good thing. So I thought, let's, you know, we referred to it. We've never plowed in. And, oh, boy, uh, <laughs> you, you know, fire up your coffee pot, Leo. <laughs> is this going to involve math? Oh, this is going to, yeah. What I'm going to, okay. <laughs> the math is so hairy that we, I'm going to describe it visually and kind of clearly the, the 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 point is not to turn us all into cryptographers who could go home and start writing code the the goal is 
to get an understanding of it, sort of, you know, coffee, coffee table style understanding, where in the, in the same way where I can say we take two big primes and we multiply them, now you, it's hard to take them apart. There is a one-way function there. Uh, ECC has something, that, and, and that's known as a trapdoor function in, in cryptography. Elliptic curve cryptography has that too, but it is not as easy to describe but the flip side of that is we get much more strength. We get something, for example, with, with um, 256 bits of the, uh, that is a public key of just 256 bits. We get the equivalent of about 3,000 bits of, of prime factor crypto, that is the, the standard RSA crypto. So much smaller keys, much faster operation. That means smaller packets and, and, and easier use. There, there's implementations for 8-bit chips, you know, 8-bit micros. So it, there are things that it can do that, that the sort of the traditional public key crypto can't. Um, but it does it. Because it's a lot more involved. So that's... Uh, <laughs> and that's where we come and in. I, and I think I can explain it. <laughs> well, before you try that, can we can we pause for a moment and mention our friends at Citrix? Everybody take, yes, do some <laughs> take deep a deep breath. Take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Yeah. So uh, here's the deal. Uh, Citrix is uh, doing a new product. Well, it's an old product. In fact, it's one of the best known products for... Um, uh, yeah, IT and support people in the world. Go to assist.com. You, I, I've talked about it for years. I know you know about it. I think there was a study uh, recently by um, IDC or one of the uh, one of the other people who said that 38%, it's the number one remote access tool, 38% of the market, something like that. Well, that's going to go to a lot higher because they've added something to the remote access. They now have remote monitoring and it goes hand in hand with remote access to make go to assist a huge value for anybody who's in support and even better value if you want to take your business to the next level become a managed service provider this is the tool that lets you do it like our friend russell tammany i refer to him all the time our it guy he is a managed service provider three people in his company support over 400 companies how could you do that with this, that's how. You need remote access because you can't be all, in all those places at once. And you need remote monitoring so you can be proactive. See, with remote monitoring, you can tell what's going on before it becomes a problem, before your client even calls, and you can fix it. And the client, all the client knows is, gee, everything seems to work better. It just all seems to do right. Um. That's the remote monitoring. So here's the deal. Here's how it works. You, uh, you, first of all, you can get a free account for 30 days with all of the features of GoToAssist by visiting GoToAssist.com. Use our promo code SECURITY, if you would, to give Steve credit for that. Uh, and then put that crawler on your client network. Do it on your own network first. It's a good way to try it out. It will find all the hardware, all the network-attached devices, and even inventory all the software on each computer, Mac, PC, or Linux attached to the network. Now you could set up dashboards. They have, you know, preset dashboards. You can customize them completely to tell you things like, you know, network throughput, server performance, hard drive capacity. Uh, you can even find out whether the toner cartridges are empty or full. Uh, so this and get alerts, instant messenger, text messages, 
even email messages that say, hey, toner cartridge is low in client 5B, and you and this is great. You can Now, in many cases, you can use their remote access and fix it. 30 days free of this. I got to warn you, though, <laughs> you're not going to go back or want to go back to the old tool that you were using. Visit G-O-T-O-A-S-S-I-S-T. Go to assist.com. Uh, take a look before you try it. Uh, you might want to take a look at all the things that go to assist can do, but once you uh, once you know about it, uh, I think you're going to really want to try it. G O T O assist dot com and click the try it free button. The promo code is security. Put it put it on your um, punch list for later today. I know you're going to like it. Uh, before we go to the heavy math, <laughs> I, actually, it's not going to be that. If you listen to this show, you're smart. We know that. You wouldn't listen to the show if you weren't. You'll be able to figure this all out. But meanwhile, yeah. what's going on in computer yeah. technology news? There's security so, news. So not too much. Um, we had a big patch from Oracle, uh, our friendly providers of Java. The uh, the language many people love to hate, hate to love, have no choice but to love. And many people write to me saying, Steve, you know, I know it's a bad thing. I understand how dangerous it is, but we got to have it. So for those of you who got to have it, uh, Oracle just fixed 30 security holes in their various Java packages. They are now at, if you have moved to major version 7, they are now at update 9. If you are still at major version 6, they are now at update 37. Um, Now, Apple is independently updating Java, but after the catastrophe they had um, earlier this year with hundreds of thousands of Macs being compromised as a consequence of a of a known hole that they were slow to patch, they will likely, I think we will probably be having an update from Apple, Apple's Java shortly. No, nothing so far. This was just yesterday, so what's that, uh, October 16th, that, that they released this major 30 uh, security hole update. So um, you can go to java.com, uh, check your version if you need it. Uh, the advice is is never probably going to change, which is if you if you know you don't need it, remove it if you have it. If you're not sure if you need it, then you probably don't, so remove it. And only if you know you need it, should you keep it, in which case you definitely want to keep it up to date. It is it is the most routinely exploited um, entry point for malware. It's just, you know, there are, it is, it's, it's getting less attention because it's not the browser itself. It's, you know, it's right up there with, with Flash in terms of, of being a, an exploit target for hackers. So, you know, both of those things being add-ons to, you know, large add-on libraries to the, the, the underlying browser technology. So it's important to keep it updated. And um, I, I have not seen, I'm a little bit behind and I'm waiting because I like, like to sort of see when this thing's going to update. And, you know, I have it disconnected from my browser, so I'm not, I'm not in danger. And I've got no script locked, you know, locking down my browsing. And I generally don't go anywhere on the internet that's, that's sketchy. So, you know, I'm, I'm like you, Leo, I'm generally keeping myself pretty safe, but 
Um, it is a way for bad guys to get in. So time to fix it. Yeah. We talked, uh, was it last week? I think it was just last week, maybe the week before, about the UPEC fingerprint last software week. Yeah. disaster. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the good news is they were relatively quick in addressing the problem. They're doing a little bit of finger pointing, but I found a blog posting. Wait Actually, a minute. It was- Wait a minute. Our software is totally broken, but it's not our fault? Yeah. Well, who can they point a finger at? Yeah, well, okay, so here's what they said. They, and th- th- this is Miroslav Buran. He wrote, Authentech takes security seriously, which is why we contacted Elcomsoft shortly after their recent blog post, which claimed that Protector Suite stores Windows passwords insecurely. Now, let's remember that with just that information, that claim, what we shared last week was an independent researcher who also cracked it. So it wasn't apparently that difficult. Anyway, they going on with the blog posting, Authentech evaluated Elcomsoft's claims after they provided relevant information to the company. Based on the findings of our team, Elcomsoft confirmed passwords stored in Protector Suite were not quote, barely obfuscated, unquote, as written in their report. Okay, so Authentech is saying it wasn't as bad as they said. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Elcomsoft has reverse engineered the AES key generation algorithm in Protector Suite and written code that uses this information to unlock the AES encrypted storage. Now, okay, wait again. We know that this wasn't, you know, they're saying AES like it's some badge of honor. We know that it was dramatically watered down AES 56, Mm. which doesn't really exist in the world. Mm -hmm. They just zero padded it in order to weaken it, apparently, so that it would it would meet 56 bit maximum key length um, export requirements. So it's like, okay, well, so. Yes, all this is true, but it's not like like what El- like what Authentech had was AES in any standard strength. And then their final, you know, uh, butt covering is any tool that uses this code maliciously must be downloaded by a user <laughs> and given administrator rights to be effective. So well, there. of course that's true for everything. <laughs> Making it no more or less potent than widely available keyloggers in harvesting personal information. And that's not true because, because the, the login process is specifically protected from eavesdropping with all of that extra stuff that Microsoft does that, for example, keeps – there's no keylogger running at the time that you're logging in and, and it is very well protected – and what, what a, an, a reverse engineering of, of Authentech's insecure technology yields is information at rest access. And being able to access information at rest is vastly more effective than, than having to try to get something going by. So it's really not comparable. Anyway, they said, finally, in order to protect protector suite users okay now 
now they're, I guess they're saying they need protection, even though what they've said before was, well, it's not really that big a problem. In the event that Elcomsoft makes this code more widely available, okay, which is not the concern anyone really has because Elcomsoft isn't likely to do that. They don't need to. Other people have independently broke it. They said Authentech has created an update to Protector Suite with a hardened version of our AES key generation algorithm. We don't know what that means. You can download the update from the link below. Support.authentech, A-U-T-H-E-N-T-E-C dot com slash P-S, as in Protector Suite, update 2012. So that's all run together, one line. Support.authentech.com slash P-S update 2012. Now, I have been unable to get to the support.authentech.com site all morning. Um, fortunately, I already had this text grabbed and saved, or I couldn't have grabbed it for the podcast. So I don't know what their problem is, but uh, maybe they're you know under attack. Who knows? <laughs> What's your or damage? Their servers... <laughs> yeah. So and funny. they said, latest version of Protector Suite 2012 included the hardened AES encryption can be found in the download section of the support site and support.authentech.com slash downloads slash windows slash protector suite dot ASPX. Users of protector suite with the store to device option available and enabled would not be affected as keys are stored on the fingerprint sensor and are unique to each PC. So what that says is we wish that everybody was storing their keys in the sensor, but apparently store to device option is not always available or enabled, and in which case we store them insecurely in the registry. So this is an unsatisfying response from a security company. They, As we know, the proper response is tell us everything about what you're doing. If you cannot tell us everything about what you're doing, then we have no reason to believe that it is secure or that even you think it is secure, so they're still hiding what they're doing. Still, whatever they've done presumably is better than what they were doing before. So if you are a laptop user, if you are using UPEX um, fingerprint software and UPEX has been purchased, as we know, by Authentech, then I would certainly suggest updating to the having the 2012 update running so there is something now for people to do um still is not very satisfying for a company that is attempting to provide you know very you know mission critical uh, security technology i just don't, now I mean, it's sound like a, it's a it's like a non-denial <sighs> denial and i just it's yeah like come on yeah take this responsibility is the, this is, yeah this is not the right way to handle yeah. this at all you know blaming the people who found a vulnerability it. and yeah. then accusing them of maybe releasing it in the future. So that's why you're going to increase your security uh, <laughs> instead of just fixing it. Yeah. Now, um, I wasn't sure we were going to have a podcast today, Leo. You said that, and I'm I'm puzzled because you are the man. You've never missed one. What what, what could possibly, one. possibly make you want to miss a show? Came very close. <laughs> 
<laughs> I got to know. What is this magic thing? You... One of my favorite authors, yeah. one of this podcast's favorite authors, yeah. Michael McCollum. Ah, sci-fi. sci-fi. Go ahead. Sci-fi AZ, sci-fi AZ, or sci-fi hyphen AZ.com. Right. His webpage right now, if you go there, maybe you should go there before anybody else does, oh, Leo, if you want to show don't, don't, Everybody show stop right now. <laughs> We have, a, we have a habit of bringing stuff down. Okay, got it. Sci-fi-az.com. Yeah. You'll see a picture there. Euclid's Wall. Michael, what is Euclid's that? Euclid's Wall. Yeah. Well, Michael sent me his manuscript when he was the only person who had read it. Um, I have since been in communication with yeah, him. Brought it down. And, a, and he and his <laughs> wife are reading it. What? Uh, what? Just killed it. Okay. <laughs> You're you just. I'm glad I pulled it up before you did. Um, dead, dead, dead. Um, I couldn't put it down. Really, it is really fun. There are so many fun things about it. Uh, first of all, I was a little worried because it had a, a three-masted sailing. You know, I don't know what you call it—a galleon or galleon or I mean, like in a Nina the Pinta the Santa Maria <laughs> yeah, style. Yeah, yeah. You know, big. <laughs> Ahoy, matey. Big, yeah. Big yeah. ship right on the, the front. front. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, okay, you know, I don't know. You know, what is this going to be? And in the first, in the in the prologue, two PhDs um, basically destroy the world. <gasps> That's not good. Now, I would never give away anything important. So that is not an important thing. <laughs> to know oh, because you well. you learn it in the first two pages. Oh, okay. That sets us up for a really interesting s- sort of adventure story set further in the future. This is 2030 or 2087. Two PhDs think they have discovered an infinite source of energy. Oh, no, not the old black hole infinite source of energy problem. It, Exactly. And uh doesn't turn out quite the way they Oh expect. dear. Sucks the whole darn earth right in there. Well, no. Um but I won't talk about what it does. It's but not good, obviously. Suffice to say it shakes us back to almost no civilization. Oh. Um we then pick up the story a hundred years hence. Oh. Where there are things like techno archaeologists. Right. Digging this, who are st- trying to digging. figure out how did they make these things? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And little really intriguing bits of stuff that have survived and and anyway, I don't want to say any more. Uh I I don't I don't I don't know how soon Michael is going to have it available. Um he publishes I I don't know if he'll publish in print as he has his other novels or ebooks which he has both on his site and on Amazon through, you know, Amazon's Kindle. Um, I like this. I like this genre. Did you ever read a book called Earth Abides? No. A guy wakes, well, a guy goes up on a hike into a mountain, and uh, when he comes back, everybody's dead. Some disease hit. He got a little bit bit, but he survived. Kind of like The Stand, where a disease wipes out civilization. I love that kind of story. Well... This has got romance and and good character development and uh, a really Michael always sets up really intriguing problems, which yeah. is why I've all I mean he's you know he wrote the Gibraltar Earth series, um, you know just everything he's done I have enjoyed and 
And anyway, so the point is, I I just couldn't stop reading it. You couldn't put it down. <laughs> I could not stop reading it. Wow. And uh, I finished it last night, fortunately. And so we have a podcast today. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, I don't know. Is, is it a long, uh, long book? Mm, no. I, I got it. Uh, from him, middle of last week, and I had a lot of things going on with me, and I had, and I apologize for not having been able to get to it, and so mostly I read it over the weekend and yesterday, hmm. um, and really enjoyed it. So um, I I can't recommend it yet because can't it's not buy yet it ready. yet. Yeah, can't buy it yet. But you know, he said he said coming next month. I don't know. That's what, that's what his webpage yeah. says yeah. right yeah. now. Um, so it will be soon. I don't, so we're not teasing people too much, but anyway, I just, it, it was very fun. Can't and, wait. oh, and his other ones, for example, have been trilogies. This one wraps it. Yeah. So this is not, I, I would be, I would have a different position if I was left with a cliffhanger because, because uh, as we know, it's so annoying to yeah. like read something and then it's like, oh, yeah. God, now I got to wait that. for, hate yeah. it when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I can't wait. That's exciting. I might have to go now. Get a copy. Many people have asked for a third part of our Over the Sugar Hill series, Leo, mm-hmm. uh, which I think we should do. But I wanted to formally make a call for our listeners' experiences. It's been more than six months for me. It's been more than six months for everyone. So there is a feedback page on the health-related research pages at GRC grc.com slash health slash low carb dot htm or actually uh, slash health slash feedback dot htm. I would like to have, I don't want to just relate my own history and yours. I would love to have our listeners uh, give us a larger sampling of their experiences, either way, good, bad, tried it, fell off of it, tried it, loved it, uh, and so forth. So I wanted to uh, formally make a call for people to send me their experiences. Um, let me know if I can use their name or not. I'm happy to keep it anonymous if there's no if they're if they'd rather that. It's a little more fun if we if we have a name attached. But I certainly understand if somebody they're afraid Doctor Mom will that. find out. And... <laughs> so you don't want that uh, to happen. And, and so we uh, we will come back to the topic and and have a lot of you know a much broader base of experience to Good. share. Can't wait. Um, I got an interesting question from. I'm not sure he's a listener actually because uh, it just sort of it didn't specifically say, but he he asked uh, a question about Spinrite that I thought our listeners would find interesting. He's, his name is Alan Levine, and he said we work. In the VDI, the Virtual Desktop Infrastructure and SAN space, can you let me know how many read writes your level four Spinrite product does in an hour on a 500 gigabyte disk and if different on an SSD? I know that you – oh, he is a listener because otherwise he wouldn't know that I only recommend levels one or two on SSDs, which, of course, we've been discussing recently, so Alan is probably listening to this. But some expensive ones are claimed to have a very long life in spite of whatever you throw at them. I'd like to find out if that's true. Okay, so I wrote back. I said, Spinrite's surface analysis slash pattern testing strategy 
has evolved significantly since the early days of MFM and RLL drives. When drives switched to PRML encoding, which is what they use now, that stands for Partial Response Maximal Likelihood, which gives you a sense for how far out in the voodoo weeds. I don't want to hear likelihood when it comes to my hard drive. <laughs> exactly. It <laughs> might be data there. Par partial response, maximal likelihood. It's the, the, the bits are, are truly so close together that they are now interacting with each other. So the drive looks at what it gets back when it's reading and and chooses the the highest likelihood of what was written that would result in that being read back i mean it that's how far out we have gone i mean it really has become amazing that these things work at all anyway so and and so so what's happened is there are several stages of processing between what I would call the user data, that is the, the, the data we think we're storing on the drives, and what actually is written. There was, for example, back in the early days, uh, you will remember, Leo, there was something called write precompensation. And, yeah. the, the, and, and what happened was at a certain cylinder of the drive, write precomp would, would be engaged. And, and what that meant was... Think about it. As you go to to successively um, uh, inner cylinders that have a shorter circumference, but you're storing the same number of bits on each cylinder, that is on each track, if the track is further in, it's, a, it's got a, an actual lower circumference it, it's a shorter track in terms of its linear measurement which means the bits are pushed closer together well it turns out that what happened it turns out that when you read back bits of differing polarity which are close together they read back as closer than they actually are that is they appear closer than they were written because they are influencing each other so right precompensation, it precompensated for that, essentially that sort of a, that bit attraction by writing them further apart on purpose so that when they read back, they would, they would be in the position that they were to be expected. So this gives you, you know, that, that's, that, that's the old days. But, but so that's an example of some, some algorithmic fudging that was being done in order to allow more bits to be stored. Well, we're now decades past that where, you know, maximal likelihood is <laughs> the domain we're in. The point is that Spinrite once knew how to write patterns that were so-called worst-case patterns. Those were patterns which deliberately used the knowledge of what was difficult to read in order to give to make it harder for the drive to do its job thus those were patterns that were that spinright used for testing the surface and testing the whole reading writing channel well there's no way to know today what we tell the drive to write and what it actually does write because there's there's several stages about three or four stages of preprocessing that go on 
to like um, there, 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 there's a process called whitening where we where, where no matter what we write, we end up with a 50 50 um, uh, statistical anal- uh, statistical probability of bits and all kinds of pre-writing and coding in order to in order to put down um, flux reversal patterns that again have the maximal likelihood of being uh, read back. So this notion of pattern testing has really gone away. Consequently, what Spinrite does is something that is simple and fast because the other thing that's happened of course is drives have gotten huge so you just can't afford the time of you know of, of doing 30 different test patterns on a drive so spinrite reads the data inverts all the ones to zeros and zeros to ones writes that back then reads that and verifies that it it got back the inverted data then it reinverts it or that is to say, rewrites the original data and then rereads it to make sure that it could read that back. So it says, okay, there's no way to know what's actually being put on the drive. We're just gonna we're gonna verify that on at the data level, we can write ones and zeros to every location in, in terms of the user's data, and we'll let we'll, we will use the the tremendous capability of the drive to recover whatever it's got back to our data um, and, and, and use that. If there's a problem, the drive will see it and then we'll relocate that data to safety as we've described uh, in the past. So consequently, Spinrite writes exactly twice the size of the drive while it's running. If you're running in the, the 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 level four pattern testing mode, where it's actually writing to the surface, even if it, it was able to read it uh, without any trouble, so Spinrite reads the surface, recovers the data, then does its its dual inversion, flipping all the bits from zeros to ones and ones to zeros, but twice, and verifying that the drive was able to read that back in each case, which, give, which again shows the drive if it's going to have a problem uh, with that area in the future. So if you had a two gig or two gig, a two terabyte drive, Spinrite would write four terabytes of data. In, in the case of Alan's question, a 500 gig disk, it would write one terabyte worth of data, essentially writing every sector on the drive twice. So... That's uh, the answer to the question, That's and a, another little bit of peeking under the covers of how Spinrite works. We, we're this is good. You put this all together, you have a pretty good idea. Yeah, pretty impressive. A lot of a uh, lot of energy. Uh, lots of technology yeah. under the cover. Hey, speaking of technology, nice segue. Before we get to the mathematical portion of the show, <laughs> wind up your propellers. <laughs> get. I'm going to give you some time to get your propeller hat on while I talk about Ford. And their technology, and Ford Sync in particular. If you go to Ford.com slash technology, they've got a great page. It talks about all the different uh, Ford technologies that are out there, including, I might add, uh, you can grab a – this. they have the badge on this site now, too, so you can get your, your Ford Social badge right here. Um, ooh, 2013 Fusion. This is the one I want. But let me point out that Ford Sync is now offered on every 2012-2013 Ford vehicle sold in the U.S., including the new 2012 Ford Focus. What a nice car that is. 
Uh, sync is the thing that I talk about all the time. It's I have that in my 2010 Mustang. And I loves it. By the way, tried it with the iPhone 5. I know people were curious. Works great. Either with uh, the Bluetooth stereo, the A2DP, which is I really like because the quality is so good. You just get in the car. My music starts playing. You get out. It stops. Um, but you can also hook it up using your new lightning cable because the, the uh, Ford Sync vehicles have one, in some cases, two USB ports. These are great. They charge. They even charge when the car's off, which is nice. But they also allow you to control the iPod, and I'm so pleased to say I can browse the iPod, control it, and even talk to the new iPhone 5 via that USB cable. And that's why Ford Sync is cool, because the design is to keep your eyes on the road and the hands on the wheel, but they know you want to listen to your music or our podcast or whatever. So you use the voice-activated sync to talk to your iPhone or your iPod or your, or your Android phone, too, for that matter. You can browse your collection by genre, by album, artist, playlist, song title, all by voice command. Uh, you can play uh, a playlist. You can say, sync, play You know my easy listening playlist or whatever. You can say, <laughs> while you're listening to a song, play more like that. Play similar music is the command. And it'll find similar music. Um, no matter how your music is stored, you can voice control it via Bluetooth streaming on your smartphone, USB drive, MP3 player. And as I said, it, yes, I'm very happy to report it works great with the iPhone 5 as well. Oh, and there's a nice feature called iTunes tagging if you're using an iOS device. you could well, With available sync with my Ford Touch and HD radio, you can say, uh, tag that song because I want to buy it when I get home. Oh, I love that song. Even when you're listening on HD radio, Tag that song. I want to buy it. And then uh, you can purchase a song directly from the iTunes store later. Best of all, you can get sync on every Ford vehicle and find out more at the website, which is Ford.com slash technology. I, I get emails and tweets. I got one. I mentioned it yesterday from a guy who said, How, who do I tell? Let me see if I can find it. Who do I tell that I just bought a Ford because of sync? I said, you tell me. That's fine. Let's see, if I have another one here. Um, he said, hey, I just want to let you know that I bought my car. Oh, it was on Twitter. I bought my car uh, on uh, because of your ads for Sync. People, and I'll tell you what, they love Ford Sync. It's fantastic. You'll love it too. Find out more at a Ford dealer near you. Go further in your Ford or learn online at Ford.com slash technology. I use Pandora all the time. Don't tell the radio stations that. But I just, it's, it's my favorite music choice. All right. Beanie's on. Okay. So um, we've talked many times about symmetric cryptography where you have key links of 128 bits, um, 192, 256, AES, the, uh, our, our current symmetric encryption standard uh, is that. It's, it's very fast. It's used for so-called bulk data encryption. Um, it's, you know, and, and things like RC4 uh, is another example of, of, a, of, in that case, a stream cipher, which is used for performing bulk encryption. So we have those which use private keys or secret keys, which are able to um, encrypt and decrypt at high speed. We also famously have public key cryptography, the sort of the, the flip side where 
where we instead of using one key, which is used typically with either one or two algorithms, you may have, for example, in the case of RC4, it produces a bit stream, which we exclusive or with the data in order to encrypt it, which means we do the same thing to decrypt it. We produce the same bit stream over at the decryption end and exclusive or it again, uh, which turns all the bits back into what they originally were. There's an example of one algorithm that does that is used to, to do both encryption and decryption or um, typical um, iterative crypto like AES. We, we did a podcast on exactly how AES works where you take the key, you run it through a so-called key expansion in order to create lots more bits than the key has. And then you you successively run your decrypted data through an iterative process um, that uses chunks of the derived key bits each time. And you run it through like, you know, 11 or 14 or however many times the, cryptog- the cryptographer's determine is necessary to sufficiently scramble the data. And every time through that iteration, it takes a unique input combination and produces exa- and maps it essentially to a very difficult to, to track output combination, yet in a single iteration doesn't do it enough that you couldn't, you couldn't figure it out. Thus, they run it through enough times that the, the relationship between bits is lost from what you initially put in and what you initially get out. But that means that decrypting it, you can't do the same thing. You have to literally reverse the process. So on a, with a cipher like AES, that is to say Rheindahl, you, the, you decrypt with a different approach. You run it sort of backwards in order to get back what you put in. So then we have the, so that's the whole symmetric side. Relatively fast, um, a secret key, you use the same key, but either the same or different algorithms depending upon the way the cipher works. With public key cryptography, we have a, a whole different model and, and elegant in its own right, where we have a typically a private key and a public key. And it doesn't have to be – the other key doesn't have to be public. But the idea being that one key is used for encrypting or enciphering to produce something unpredictable um, given an input and you get an output. And only the matching key, the the key that was made – typically these are made as a pair. One is is kept private. The other is made public. But, but again, the, the only the other key can be used to undo what the first key does. So that was a huge breakthrough for crypto because, because until that time, where there was the whole problem of, well, how do I, if I have, a, if I have a, a secret key cipher, like we talked about first, like AES, how do you get that to the recipient securely to allow them to decrypt what you've encrypted. So there's a whole communication problem. You need some sort of a secure channel to get the secret information. With public key cryptography, that problem is solved because you can just pick a big random number and you can encrypt it with your recipient's 
public key and then send it publicly because only somebody who has the matching private key and presumably the recipient would be keeping it secret is able to decrypt what you encrypted with their public key. So this 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 is the the foundation of all of our modern crypto that we've talked about. The, and and the idea is the public key the public key technology cryptography as i mentioned at the top of the of the podcast it it works but it works in a fundamentally different way um where where we rely on some sort of a difficult problem but the it, it it's sort of a softer domain that is to say um for example, with traditional public key crypto like, you know, RSA style, where we rely on the difficulty in factoring um, the the products of large primes. Well, it's the largeness of the primes that's that creates the problem. If if these were small primes, then their their product would be small and computers are so fast these days that it wouldn't be that difficult. We have like spent a lot of energy on coming up with ways to factor, to to to, to produce prime factorizations of numbers. So it's 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 not that that is difficult so much as it is time consuming, and we've never, despite all the time and attention we've given to it, we've never found a way to short circuit essentially what is brute force. So the strength we get from traditional prime factorization style public key cryptography arises from the size of the of the factors the size of the numbers but what that the flip side of that is the keys must be big so i mean everything must be big numbers and so what that means is when we're dealing with big numbers then then processors are still have word sizes much smaller than those big numbers. And we're talking about 2,048 bits, but the processors are down at 32 or 64 bits typically. So they have to, that means they have to do everything in multiple chunks and they have to handle multiple precision math and, you know, really hairy stuff. So, so what that means is that that cryptography is, is not applicable for, bulk crypto that's why we use the the clever approach of choosing as i mentioned before we choose a random number we encrypt that using the public key technology send that to someone who can decrypt it now we've essentially managed to share a symmetric key which we can then use for performing our bulk crypto and that's basically the way ssl and many of these other um hybrid protocols function now, everything's fine, except that it's difficult to put this kind of very processor-intensive technology on a smart card or on an uh, RFID tag uh, or on a near-field chip. Did I hear you go, ah, Liam? Yeah, now I'm getting it. Why did <laughs> uh -huh. we need another one? Well, because this one yes. is computationally intensive. Exactly. So we need a, a way we could do it less expensively. Exactly. And, and what would be really cool is if we had a technology that was 
public key crypto that was lightweight enough that we could use it with near field technology. That is right. something like a you know printed on a piece of paper. The the weakness, as we discussed when we were talking about near field stuff, is that it's just you know it's basically giving you a serial number like an RFID tag. And now there are there are better solutions for that, but it, we're never really talking in terms of serious crypto for future applications. It would be nice if we had stronger, that is to say, really good public key style crypto for something that could be powered. I mean, it is, it is that is computationally simple enough that it can be powered off of a pulse of electromagnetic radiation rather than needing, you know, heat sinks and fans to keep it cool while it's doing its work. Well, enter elliptic curve cryptography, ECC. An it's an entirely different way of solving this, essentially giving us the same feature. And because it is, it's got nothing to do with prime factorization, uh, it's like starting over. It's like, okay, let's come up with a, a whole different approach. So um, as I also mentioned at the top, I'm, it's not my intention to turn us all into people who can go home and, and write code for ECC at the end of this. But, but I want to give everyone a sort of a, a, a level of comfort, a, a feeling for kind of what it means so that it's like, okay, I kind of get that. Sort of at the same level as, okay, I understand if I take two big prime numbers and multiply them together, um, then it's going to be difficult to take them apart. You know, multiplying is easy. Factoring is hard. So what we have with, what we have with elliptic curve cryptography is, um, is a, a dip into some, some kind of hairy math, but not impenetrable. Uh, we just sort of have to say, okay, <laughs> I'm going to allow this. So, for example, uh, so what is a curve? Um, a, a parametric curve is what elliptic curve cryptography uses. Now, a simple parametric curve is x equals y, and we and so if we took a we took a, a two dimensional and th and this is planar. The, the this is all just two dimensional. So we have just an x and a y axis that are orthogonal on a on a on a two dimensional plane surface. So the parametric curve x equals y is as we know from our high school algebra, is just a, is a straight line, a diagonal line uh, running at a 45-degree angle because where if x equals y on, the, on, our, on our graph, where we have x equals 1, y will be 1. Where x equals 2, y will be 2. Where x equals 3, y will be 3. So, and, and all values in between, similarly, x and y are the same which gives us a so that so this x equals y equation describes this straight line on our graph now if we added a constant say y equals x plus 5 well so now if x equals 1 y equals 6 because we have x plus 5 equals y so 
So x equals 1, y equals 6, x equals 2, y equals 7. So again, we have a, we have a diagonal line, but it's been shifted upwards by 5. So it's, it's the same 45-degree 45, 45 angle shifted, sh- shifted up by 5. Now, if we were to multiply one of these parameters, say y equals 2x, well, then when x equals 1, y equals 2. When x equals 2, y equals 4. When x equals 3, y equals 6. So what's happened is the slope of the line changed when we added that, that, two, that 2 parameter to the y equals x. So it's y equals 2x. Now the, 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 the slope is increased. If instead we said y equals x over 2, which is the same as x times 1 half, then the, the slope of the line decreases. It's more, more, uh, more horizontal. It's flatter. And similarly, we could do both at once. We could say y equals 2x plus 5, which would give us a, a steeper line, which is also moved up by 5. So we can do both at once. So that's, you know, uh, this is something we all obviously know from high school um, algebra. Now we can also do something a little different. We could say, for example, y equals x squared or, you know, x times x. So now we get a different, now suddenly we don't have a straight line anymore. If x is 1, then y equals 1 times 1, which is 1. If x is 0, we ought to start there maybe, then y is 0. When x goes to 2, though, y jumps up to 4 because we have we have y equals 2 times 2 is 4. When x is 3, y jumps up to 9 because we have 3 squared. So what we get is a parabola. We get a, we, we get a, a curve on the positive side of x, which goes up very steeply. And on the negative side of x, it also goes up very steeply because Minus 2, where if x is minus 2, minus 2 times minus 2 is, plus, is positive 4. So thus we get a, a, a parabolic curve. We could then do things to it like add or, or, or take factors and so forth. Okay, so the, I wanted to give us a little bit of foundation first just so we're on the same page because the equation for elliptic curve cryptography, all ECC is y squared equals x to the third plus ax plus b. That's all there is to it. So, so y times y, y squared equals x to the third, that is x times x times x plus ax, where a is a parameter, plus b, where b is, just, as we saw before, skews the whole thing. That is the, the sort of the master equation for elliptic curve cryptography. Um, so what, what that describes, this y squared equals x to the third plus ax plus b, it's a, it's a, a complex relationship between x and y. 
Um, so, and it, depending upon what the parameters are, um, it, it can look um, very different. The concept then is that we have points on this curve which we multiply by themselves. So, so think about so think about we have we have this. If you imagine a, a two-dimensional surface with some lines drawn on it, and the lines satisfy that equation. That is to say, for so they're, so they're they're continuous curves. But every point on that curve, if you take the x-coordinate and the y-coordinate, that equation is satisfied for a chosen A and B parameters. So the, the act of, of coming up with, with turning this from, from that, that curve to crypto is... We have again. I use the the the, the term trap door. Um, that is a trap door is a one way function. It's something which which we can do easily in the forward direction, but we cannot do it easily in the reverse direction. In the case of prime numbers, the trap door is it's easy to multiply two primes. It is difficult if you don't know what they are, if you only have the product to pull them apart again. So that's the trapdoor function upon which traditional RSA resides. In the case of elliptic curve cryptography, we have a we have a curve with known parameters. That is, when 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 these algorithms are published, or when when the the implementation of this is published, the parameters A and B are public. They're known, and they are. They're the subject of standards. NIST has a bunch of, of ECC curves which, where they've worked out the details and these, the, the A and B parameters are, are part of what is described as, you know, given this curve, then this is the one that we will use to perform our encryption. So the, the process of encryption is to to take a point on the curve and multiply it by itself. That is th through successive addition where, where we take a point on the curve and add it to itself. Well, now that's the, you know, it's like, okay, wait a minute. It's a point on the curve. How do we add a point to a point? Well, this is defined by the mathematicians as something called point addition, which, you know, exists in the field of math for these kinds of curves. Point addition is defined as taking two points along a curve and computing where a line which passes through them intersects the curve. So you have two, two different points on the curve which and, and again, this this y squared equals x to the third plus ax plus b curve, two points on there. So you you those two points, as we know from again from um, high school algebra, two points define a line. So somewhere the curve intersects somewhere else. The curve intersects this line. So 
the the point of of the line's intersection the, that passes through our our two points that we're adding where that line intersects the curve that's the what's called the sum of the first two points well okay the problem is how do you start because if you if you're starting with just one point then there then then you have a whole family essentially infinite number of lines because there is no there is no um there's no second point different from the first to establish a line so the mathematician said ah that's easy we will define the 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 straight line where the two points are the same as the tangent line at that point in the curve so we start with a point and the and the curve will have some slope at that point and so we did, we obtain the tangent line which is of course the line that it, that runs um, tangent uh, or perpendicular to the well uh, you know along in at the, has the same slope as the line that then our um, our elliptic curve line does at that point and so that defines the line for the first two points which are are not different from each other that gives us a third point now we've got two points and we can then then draw lines between them so so if you're still with me <laughs> i got it have, it's a tangent yeah so so we have so we take a point and we we find the tangent to of of the tangent angle at that point then we look at where that line intersects the curve and where and that gives us our second point now we add we have that point and our first point and they form a line which we then we find out where that intersects the curve that gives us our third and so forth so this allows us to iteratively sum from a given point some number of times in elliptic curve crypto the number of times we do that is the private key so so we take a random number we generate we take a random number that is our are going to be our private key and we we multiply essentially think about it if we if we take the point plus the point plus the point plus the point well that's you know n times p where n is our private key so so we're we're multiplying the point by our private key the result of all of that and you can imagine like you know how constructive sort of geometrically constructive this is because we're dealing with this wacky elliptic curve and plotting points on it and and you know and where lines through the pair of points intersect the curve and then we jump to there and continue we do that however many times is required for the private key that we choose the result is the public key and the point is there is there is no way <laughs> you can well imagine no way to reverse that process that is this is a very difficult one way process the trapdoor function is 
doing all of that from a given a, a, from a given private key is the number of times we move th we move th along this curve computing these points and the result is the public key and um it is it is then it is possible using this math to essentially um, well, what, what, what we get is, is the same sort of thing, a one-way function. We can, we can easily, relatively easily, go forward. There is, just, there is no known way to go backward. And the reason we've gone through all this is the bit space that all of this operates in is vastly smaller than the bit space required for factoring. Factoring is not difficult enough that we can use small numbers. We have to use huge numbers because we're pretty good at factoring. This wacky system that we've come up with, with elliptic curves, is understandably, I mean, or believably difficult enough that relatively few bits gives us equivalent protection. 160 bits hmm. of ECC is the equivalent of 1024 bits of, of traditional prime factorization, you know, public key technology. Remember that 1024 has been plenty strong for a long time. I only recently, and, and everybody else moving to extended validation certificates, only recently went to 2048, and that's believed to be strong, you know, forever. So, I mean, like a long time. So, so most of the websites on the net are still at 1024 bits of standard RSA encryption, and they're plenty strong. We get that equivalent strength with just 160 bits of within the ECC space. So why don't we use it for everything? It's just, it's newer. Ah. It's, it, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, cryptographers are famously conservative. I mean, look at here. As they we should were, be, yes. Yes, we launched the SHA-3 competition, what, you know, what is it, eight years ago, <laughs> just, just because maybe SHA-256 wasn't going to be strong right. enough. Right. And it turns out, oh, it is strong enough. We really don't need SHA-3. But cryptographers are super conservative. I, I was When I was researching this to get a better sense for where we are, there, are, there, is, a, there is an annual, there's a bunch of um, annual conferences that are held, and there's someone who sort of, maintains a state of ECC. And he said, well, for the fifth year in a row, I'm here to report that really nothing has happened. <laughs> so this is how old? Five years old then? Oh, no, no. This is a couple decades old. Oh, no, all right. So it's not it's, that new. This, it, exactly. It's, it's really, it's the, it's the it, I was probably more than anything, the strength of RSA, just the, you know, the political strength of RSA. They had, you know, they were, you know, everyone was enamored of the idea. They, they got all the press and the attention. Um, um, RSA's uh, patents expired in 2000. Um, the original designers of this put it into the public domain, but there have been some implementation tricks 
that were patented. So this isn't ECC is not as obviously free of intellectual property collision, except that a lot of people are like, you know, taking the position that it is, in fact, that, that you can do everything you want to do with ECC today with no intellectual property concern. Dan Bernstein, you know, who is a we've spoken of is a famous cryptographer. He's got a bunch of ECC stuff on his site and and free open source. It is it is now. For example, it's in OpenSSL, it's in the Crypto++ library, it's in the GNU TLS library, it's in OpenSSH, the, the NSS, the, the Mozilla uh, security suite has had it in their crypto libraries. Now remember the way, the way SSL operates during that initial handshake. This is one of the nicest things about the way the, the um, uh, SSL and TLS was designed is that the client says, here's all of the crypto suite, you know, uh, tools that I know of. And then the server is able to look among them and choose the strongest of those that it also supports. So they, they automatically handshake and negotiate for the, for the strongest means of establishing their relationship. That means that, for example, when, when you build an instance of OpenSSL and you enable the ECC cipher suites within the protocol, when you connect to a server that has had the same thing done, you'll automatically negotiate a strong ECC connection. And if both ends support it, you can get by with a much shorter bit string, which allows you to, to, to essentially short circuit the long setup time that ECC had, that the traditional SSL has when it's, when, when it's forced to use standard large prime pub, pub, uh, public key technology. So, so what's happening is this is getting attention because we're because performance is becoming a problem people have been pounding on ECC now for a while it's it's i guess it's less obviously or it's less intuitively difficult to reverse this process as of 2009 there is still no proof actual formal proof of the security of elliptic key crypto which you know isn't a bad thing it's it's just it's 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 a hard problem hmm. similarly there's no proof that we can't factor large numbers into their primes we just have no one has ever figured out how right. i mean they've gotten better at it but they're you know still if they're big we cannot figure out a way to do it we've never been able to prove we can't but it seems unlikely and we're resting our entire foundation on the fact that we can't. So the cryptographers are actually more comfortable with elliptic curve crypto than they are with prime factorization crypto. That is to say, the people that have been looking at this now, they're like, they're, they, they feel better about the strength of elliptic curve crypto in the future 
than they do about the future strength of crypto relying on prime factorization. The sense is everybody's a little uncomfortable about, you know, how strong that actually is. And, and the other thing is that as people have been working on both, the sense is that the, the prime factorization problem, it's been softening at a faster pace than the elliptic curve crypto problem has been. So it, the elliptic curve, the, the, the people working on it feel, you know, it's harder. It's a harder problem. It's less likely to fall to some breakthrough than, than factorization is. And everybody likes the fact that you can, with 160 bits, you can get the equivalent strength of 1024-bit um, uh, prime factorization-style public key te technology. And so what I think we're going to see is at some point in the future, we will be talking about devices which are using elliptic curve crypto, and now we all know what it is. You're masterful, my friend. <laughs> I don't understand a word you said, but it is masterful. <laughs> um, it's really interesting, and it sounds like uh, in time it might replace uh, traditional uh, public key crypto. I kind of think it's going to. The, yeah. the, the, again, cryptography and cryptographers are conservative, and we're all glad they are because when you think about it, you know, there have been – there have been mistakes made in the past with the application of these things. You know, even RC4 that was famously uh, troubled in its initial implementation with WEP, the wired equivalent privacy encryption used in, in the first Wi-Fi protocol. Well, it wasn't RC4, RC4's fault. The WEP, the, implement, the implementers of the RC4 algorithm did some things like not letting it warm up enough. It need, it, it generates um, pseudo-random bit sequences, but you got to let it churn for about 256 cycles in order for it to have scrambled itself up enough. And they didn't. They immediately started using the first things that it emitted, and it turns out that there was that, that what that did is that that meant that it hadn't scrambled up the key that it was given and so there was a, a a findable relationship between the key and the the pseudo random sequence that was being used to xor the data and it fell as a consequence so so what's nice is that we really don't have any instances of a of a, an outright collapse we have things like md4 which okay no one ever broke it but they just we got so much faster with our GPUs and our and our computers that it no longer was something we felt comfortable relying on. It was it became soft. And so we moved to MD5. And then that got a little soft. And so now we're at, you know, at SHA1, and but you know, new things should use SHA two fifty-six. So what we're seeing is we're 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 getting better at understanding these problems, the problems that we have deliberately erected for ourselves in order to create privacy. And and we're staying, however, well ahead of the, if you'll pardon the pun, the curve. <laughs> I suspect just because it's so uh, computationally uh, simple that, uh, and we are doing so many new devices that, does, that need crypto, 
uh, yes. built in that this this really will be a, a yes. great Yes, and the idea the idea of having a a lightweight, inexpensive technology which is you know can can be deployed with strong public key style technology not just private key stuff well for, well for example the you know all of the dongles that we've been talking about though those are all symmetric key yeah. those have a secret in them and and, and that's insecure Yes, it is, exactly. There is a secret in them, and we're relying on the, you know the fact that they're just giving us the output from that for the security. But we're not. There's no sort of a challenge. Um, you know, we're not giving them a challenge that they have to then answer to prove that they are who they are. They're just you know we're we're, we're maintaining a secret at RSA and a secret in the dongle, and we've already seen what happens if RSA is unable to keep their secrets. So, so we're going to take a next step here before long, and I I wouldn't be surprised if you know if at some point, certainly within the life of this podcast, which seems to show no it sign seems of infinite. Yes. <laughs> uh, we'll be talking about some cool stuff that have ECC in them, elliptic key crypto, and now comfortable with the concept because it's going to be secure enough for us. Very interesting. Really great stuff. ECC, yeah. not the ECC you're thinking of, elliptic curve cryptography. Yes, not error correction code. That's, <laughs> that's for else. a different topic. Steve Gibson knows all about that, too, and he will no doubt. In fact, I think he already has talked about that on a show. We have lots of them, 374 shows in total, available in two places. One on Steve's site, grc.com, and he does 16-kilobit versions of the show and transcripts of the show. So that's really great if you want a small, compact way to, to listen. Uh, we make video and audio, high-quality audio, available at our site, too. Twit.tv slash SN for security. Now, when you get to grc.com, though, check out Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. You got to have, if you got a hard drive, you got to have Spinrite. And uh, lots of great uh, freebies, too, uh, which he's always giving away. Next week, we will have a Q&A, I presume, unless major breaking news happens uh, over the next few days. And uh, if that's the case, you can ask your questions at grc.com slash feedback. Steve will pick 10 good ones for next week's grc. Yes. Did I say spin drive? No, spin right. Yeah. Spin right. And I do want to. I do want to encourage people. If you've had uh, a story that you think would be interesting for oh, us yes. to share with your uh, very low carb experience, I I want to. I, I know people were sharing initially. I'd like to know how that's worked out over the course of six months, and we will do a a, a third on, on I think on a Saturday after your yes uh, that's tech the best guy. Time to do it. Yep. We, we, we will we'll sneak one in and let everyone know that it exists. Saturday or Sunday. Actually, it might be better Sunday. Uh, oh, because I thought that collided with Twit. Twit is an hour after the tech guy. So we did it uh, last oh. time. I think we did it on a Sunday. Oh, yeah. We can easily. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll let you know ahead of time. Yep. <laughs> and no, Guyver, we're not going to do a very low-carb podcast. I think we'd run out of things to say. Yeah. I think there's a paleo show somewhere, though. Is it a 5 by 5 or somebody has a paleo show? Oh, there are there are several. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Podcast. So you could go listen to those. I <laughs> absolutely. Agree. That's too much. <laughs> hey, thanks, I, I, Steve. I, I, go ahead. Thanks, Leo. Do oh, you have something else you want to say? I don't want to interrupt. No. <laughs> no, All right. Glad you stopped me. <laughs> go, go, go have some. Go lunch. have some lunch. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. See you later. Security now.